You're listening to Sound Opinions, and later in the show, we're going to chat with journalist Mark Benelli. His recent piece for the New York Times Magazine uh, details the rising prominence of these hologram tours uh, featuring performances by deceased musicians. But first, we've got some answers to your questions. Yeah, Greg, you know, we often get questions from listeners and friends uh, about a variety of topics, uh, ranging from our personal musical tastes to our experience as critics to uh, how the hell could you be so wrong? So often, you name it, we get these questions. Uh, and, and we don't often get a chance to answer them. Yep. We, not, we rarely answer them on the show. So, Greg, we're going to hear uh, from some of our listeners who got to read their questions, and the others are going to be fielded by our producers. But let's start with a listener. Hi, my name is Steve, and I'm calling from Logan Square. And my question is, what do Jim and Greg listen to when they're, quote, unquote, off-duty, and in what formats? Well, that is a good question, because we do listen to so much music that is work-related. <laughs> uh, it's funny that a hobby turns into work, right, and, and vice versa, uh, and a joyful work, I must add. But it, it's always nice to, for me to be able to, when I have nothing work related to listen to at that moment or want to just play some music for a you know we have friends over or whatever i'll go to my jazz collection mm. i especially love thelonious monks blue note sessions as sort of a closing epitaph for the day you know <laughs> when i'm ready to wind down i put on some thelonious monk he just makes me happy And I just think he's such an idiosyncratic, uh, wonderful artist. And I would say the same about Ornette Coleman. Mm. So those are my kind of two go-tos when I want to listen to something just for the pure joy of it. See, I've made this joke before. I just figure when I grow up and retire, yeah. then I will uh, begin to dig deeper into jazz beyond my Coltrane box mm. set uh, and the occasional Mingus. You know, Steve, I would say I go to vinyl, right? When I am done listening to Everything. This usually happens right around the holidays, right? I, I, I go back to everything I've been listening to all year, uh, some of which we've reviewed on the show and some of which we haven't. I've got the running list. I'm trying to figure out my best of whatever year. Then we're done with that because we're taped by Christmas, and then I start cooking, right? And the whole time I'm cooking for the holidays, I'm listening to vinyl albums that I just love that I would feel guilty listening to uh, <laughs> any other time of the year because... Um, I should be listening to new music, right? So this is when I go back to the Neil Young or the Wire or the Velvet Underground. Uh, often often I've, I've, I've bought them on vinyl. I'm revisiting how great they sound on vinyl. Hi, my name is John McCormick, and my question for you two professional music critics is, how's your hearing? And what do you do to protect it? I said, how's your hearing? I'm glad John made that joke because I was going to yeah. say, like, what? <laughs> Years ago, I went to uh, see the audiologist down at, at Northwestern, which is our health system, and, uh, and had my ear hearing checked. And I had high-end hearing loss. And I invested in a great set of musicians' earplugs. That's actually the name, uh, developed by a, uh, a, some audiologists in Chicago for the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. Mm -hmm. What's great about it is it, it, these plugs, is they lower the volume level without cutting any frequency. Mm -hmm. So you get the full spectrum of live music, or in my case, when I primarily wear them is when I'm sitting behind the drums. 
Yeah. Because of that, you know, those symbols. Oh, those monitors too, the, right? Those symbols. Blasting what, that back at you? Look, I, I don't even have anything to monitor. Yeah. I let the boys amps yeah. on stage with my band carry the volume. Yeah. Uh, but I rarely have needed them at concerts. I, I, I've found that uh, with certain exceptions, like My Bloody Valentine, mm. okay, uh, certainly not uh, live festivals. Uh, uh, the volume is never that bad. So I, I always have them in my pocket at a concert, don't always wear them, always wear them when I play the drums. And I don't think uh, my hearing has eroded too badly. I'm probably overdue to go back. Yeah. It's funny you should bring up My Bloody Valentine because I do remember, at least on their last uh, swing through town, they passed out earplugs at yeah. the door. And they may have done that back in the early 90s when I saw them for the first time. I think no, they, no, ne- they no. needed to do it in 1991, back then. they did not do it. And I have to say... Do not use me as a role model for how to handle your hearing at concerts because I was of the mind that, you know, I'm never going to die. I'm never going to lose my hearing. I'm going to, you know, be be young and vital forever. And, you know, I, I also like, like the physicality of that sound, you know, going through me and knocking me back. I love that sort of feel of the music being a physical, um, you know, making a physical impression on me as well as, a you know, something that my brain could, uh, you know, chew on. But later on, like you, you know, checked it, had, had the hearing checked, high-end hearing loss, started wearing earplugs. The earplug, uh, the technology has improved so much in terms of oh, just being able to get phenomenal. it Phenomenal, and it's better, coming out of Chicago. And without losing that sort of visceral appeal. Yeah. So, you know, don't do this at home, kids. Get earplugs and, and, and save your hearing. It's not reversible. You can't get it back. No, exactly. We're going to turn now to our tallest producer, Mr. Andrew Gill. Okay, Jim and Greg, these are not my questions. I have no questions for you. I know everything about you that I want to know. But <laughs> <laughs> So we have a question from Janet, who is actually a co-worker here at WBEZ, and she wants to know, who is your favorite musician or band, and how do they inspire you? Well, I'll have to go to uh, the Velvet Underground. Up to Lexington, one, two, five, music and dirty I got a chair in my office that's called the Velvet Underground Chair. <laughs> my wife had an you artist do. paint one. It's a beautiful piece of art. You can actually see it. If you care to look at my website, there's a picture of it on Is there. Is it not somewhat disrespectful to sit on the velvet? Well, only special chair. people get to sit on the banana. That's oh, all okay. I can I say. Not you know, on the Andy banana. Warhol's bananas. Yeah. The, uh, but then there's Lou Reed's lyrics around it. I, you know, I have to say they hit me. Uh, the Live 69 record came out right around the time that I was starting to become aware that there was music besides what you heard on AM pop radio. And it was an eye-opener for me as a young young person. Um, and then finally going back and discovering their their first four studio albums, which were not available at the time. They couldn't. It was really difficult to find those records because they had gone out of print. Uh, eventually I tracked them all down. And um, I think to me, coming from uh, being a voracious reader, as a young person and a writer uh, who aspired to be a writer, I think the the um, level of Lou Reed's lyrics and combined with the mix of melody and noise in the music struck something uh, in me. This is different. This is something that you need to uh, investigate more deeply. Pop music can speak to you in a way that you didn't think was possible. Um, and I think it set me on the path toward discovering uh, music of a similar ilk. I mean, those first four Velvet's records to me hold 
the key to just about every piece of music that I've loved ever since. As the great critic Lester Banks said, the roots of all modern music come from the Velvet Underground. Uh, obviously, the Velvets, uh, I, I, I can trump your chair. I've got the banana uh, on yeah, my, my left arm. Got it. All right. You got know, uh, there. We know and love Janet. Janet yeah. is the longtime receptionist here at, at BEZ. I think she was the first person we met at BEZ Grammy. That is true. Uh, 743 weeks ago before we came in here to begin doing this show. Uh, Janet, you know I can't I can't just choose one. Um, uh, I will tell you that illustrated on my two arms are Wire, The Flaming Lips, Savages, Husker Du, The 13th Floor Elevators, Can, Brian Eno, Nirvana, The Velvets, The Feelies, Pink Floyd, The Rolling Stones, Lester Banks, Funkadelic, The Ramones, Noi! With the exclamation yeah. point, De La Soul, the Beatles' uh, public enemy, uh, the music that for me represents best the creativity, the lust for life, the explosion of personality of the best of everything I love in popular music, and uh, also that hit me at a particular time and place. Uh, so it's as much when I look at this, uh, these illustrated arms, the illustrated <laughs> man, I, I'm reminded of the music I love and the things I value, but where I was at those places and times. No, wait a minute. You got what, <laughs> 10, 12 bands there, and I only got one? At, when you, know, when you love on. a band enough and are going to go out on that limb to carry it for life in ink on your body. Uh, all right, right. I, I think what Janet's really asking is what do the two of us value most in the music that we will go to the mat for, that we will let define us for our lives and our critical careers? Yeah, absolutely. I think Janet uh, gets at the heart of what we do, why we do it. Um, to me, it's like you want to be dashed against the rocks. You want to you want to have your life changed. I mean, people talk about, you know, there's the the Lou Reed lyric. You know, my life was saved by rock and roll. It Bingo. seems like hyperbole. It seems like that's overstatement to the max. But no, it really does change your life, and it makes you uh, a more, you know, open person to new ideas and new art and the possibility of what human beings can do. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's about transcending. It's about transcending the everyday, every single time you hear a piece of music, which is an extraordinary thing, you know, to get yeah. from a little shiny plastic disc or or the machine on which you stream or, you know, vinyl record. Every single time I leave this body and this earth and go somewhere inspiring that makes me happy to be alive. That was my fanzine when I was a kid. Reasons for living. Right. There's great danger, danger for the loneliest stranger town. No silver bullets, bullets that does fit the same. Alright, uh, now producer Ayana is going to ask a question. Ayana, what do you got? This one's from Catherine V. Cassidy. She says, what would you tell a kid who thinks they want to be a music critic? What does it take? The ups and downs of the job. How have things changed since you started? Go back. Don't do it. <laughs> Run away. <laughs> like as far as fast as you can. Monty Python and the Holy Ghost. Run away. <laughs> you, you know, this question comes from Catherine only days after you walked out of the Chicago Tribune for the last time after 40 years, 30 of those as the pop music critic. Um, I think, Greg, there are not that many jobs anymore in any field. Classical music, pop music, uh, movie critic. Mm. Uh, you know, Chicago right now does not have a full-time television critic at, right. e at any of the papers. And television is having this renaissance, uh, artistic renaissance. I I'm sad to say that the need for great criticism 
is more than ever because there is so much that we all have access to in the little device in our pockets. Right. Every film, every piece of visual art, every piece of music, right? More, more music available to more human beings than any time in human history. Which is a brilliant and wonderful thing. How do you know where to start? Mm-hmm. You know, trusted uh, curators and and who uh, besides your friends you know is more reliable than a critic who you read and come to admire her opinions mm-hmm. and her view of the art form. Um, that having been said, in the same way that uh, my colleagues I- at Columbia College who, who teach poetry classes of aspiring poets, right, or or, or you know, I, I don't think any of those uh, kids are expecting to graduate and get a job as a poet, right, right. You know, ninety nine point nine percent of indie bands, uh, indie hip hop acts, or electronic artists or rock bands uh, don't expect to make a living from mm-hmm. it. They make it because they can just make this music just. As, as they can't imagine not eating or breathing. Right. And that's what I think people who love to write about art, whether they want to review movies or music, are facing a future where you're going to work as a barista somewhere and you're going to write because you love to write. It's the passion. You know, the only reason to do it is because you love it. You can't think, as you said, to, of doing anything else more passionately. Uh, and that's And that's a good reason to do it. Yeah. Uh, there's nothing stopping you from posting your reviews of anything online. Um, at the same time, don't expect to make a living out, out of it. I, to me, it's like you know, starting a band or any creative endeavor. Don't expect anybody else to like it. But yeah. if you love doing it, keep, keep at it. That's you know, what makes it, life worth living. Yeah, it's one thing to start. It's another thing to sustain it. But if you're, I always have this kind of maybe it's misplaced you know, hope and belief that if you're really good at something, sooner or later, other people are going to appreciate that. Yeah. The, the key is to keep going and doing it and getting better at it. I've been teaching uh, reviewing the arts and cultural criticism in the arts for 11 years, and I will say that I have a half dozen of what I've considered the best students who uh, began getting paid to, to do mm-hmm. criticism, uh, movies or music criticism, within a year, like, of graduating college. So, yeah. you know, it, it, it does happen. But, you know, if you want to bank on that, you might want to have a better chance of banking at winning the lottery. <laughs> Let's go to our producer, Alex Claiborne, who has a listener question for us. We have a question from Jesse Ives, and he is wondering, what is the best venue bathroom you have ever needed to use, and what is the worst? <laughs> Kind of, I don't want to think about some of this stuff. You know? No, this no. This in particular. Yeah, I mean, because, look, uh, you know, I, I am a, a, an aficionado of the dive rock clubs, the punk rock clubs. I have closed more clubs playing and, and visiting as a fan uh, than, than most people could ever visit in a lifetime. And then you have those clubs that, like, don't have doors on the stalls and the oh, urinals yeah. backed up. And, you know, and look, I grew up going to CBGB, you know, yeah. the hardcore matinees and sneaking in underage. Yeah. And CBGB's infamous basement bathroom but i i don't think anything's worse i don't think anything in the uh, universe could be worse than the porta potties at a Lollapalooza. well the worst ones were the ones at woodstock in 94 let oh, me tell yeah. you you want to cuz they overflowed because of the yeah, rib- that was yeah the rain believable there were little rivers of of defecate oh, oh. so the thing and to me, the nightmare about CBGB is not only was it a terrible bathroom, but you had to cross in front of the stage. So everybody that's, in the yeah, audience and the band knew you could were see that you were going to the bathroom. Yeah. And then if you took, you know, extra time, you know, it was just like it was it was embarrassing. Yeah, they, they, you know, it, it, was, it was just embarrassing. It was, it was like a walk of shame or something. You On know? the other hand, before the gentrification that <laughs> yeah. brought boutiques to the Lower East Side, you could just go outside and use the street. <laughs> 
True. at CBGB. He's asking about the best. I mean, he's like, like I know, is it, you know, first place tie for last or something? I don't know. Any place that's clean. Yeah. Well, at Park West, uh, they had a guy in the, oh, yeah, the, in the you there, know, there's a gentleman this, who was handing out towels to, to, to you when to Park wash West your hands. The Park West is a fascinating theater yeah, in, in Chicago. This is in Chicago, yeah. Dates back to the Capone era, and they, right. they have a gentleman who they don't actually hire. He just shows up, and yeah. you know you tip him, and then he hands you a right, towel, right. and he has like lifesavers and right. a toothbrush, mouthwash. And I would say the House of Blues, you know, I, you can say what you want about the you know, quality of music there, and that's, but in terms of the bathrooms, pretty pretty good. I mean, for a franchise, they actually do a pretty nice job of keeping those places relatively. That, that's like saying the burgers at I know, a, you I know, know, Hard you Rock know. Cafe are good. Hey, I'm trying to say something nice about rock venue bathrooms. That wraps up this edition of Ask the Critics. And as always, we want to hear from you. What questions do you have for us? Give us a call at 888-859-1800. Coming up, it's the ghosts of artists past, the rise of the hologram tour. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. He's Jim DeRigatis. And today on the show, we're talking about the surge in tours led by holograms of dead artists. From Frank Zappa to Roy Orbison, these concerts have proven to be quite successful in recent years, especially with continued advancements in the technology. Author and journalist Mark Benelli's recent piece in the New York Times Sunday Magazine is called Old Musicians Never Die, They Just Become Holograms. Mm. In that article, he explores the viability of using holograms to reanimate a live music industry whose biggest earners will soon be dying off or already have. Mark, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thanks for having me. How did you first get interested in holograms? I will confess this piece was an assignment, <laughs> but <laughs> I'd had one eye on the story for a while. Like most people, I think I first became aware of of these holograms when the Tupac hologram popped up at Coachella in 2012. That was the first big debut of one of yeah, these Yeah, like things. real simple, two songs. Right. Yeah, just two songs. It was like almost a proof of concept. It happened, you know, on this huge, it was during Dr. Dre's headlining set, so it was on this massive stage at night. Come with me, hey, run quick, see. People loved it. It, it was, you know, even at the time, that seemed creepy to people and strange. But I feel like Tupac was, in a weird way, because he'd had... You know, by that point, probably 20 posthumous albums. Yeah. People were sort of desensitized to the crassness of, of this gesture. So they were like, oh, okay, why not well, a hologram? Tupac at the time was uh, practically showing up at every hip-hop concert in the form of a video or a portrait. <laughs> he was sort of like a martyred I- icon. You couldn't escape him even even in death. So the hologram seemed a natural extension of that. But let's define hologram, if we can, Mark. How does that done exactly? So... When most people hear the word hologram, I, th- I think the, the image that pops into to their minds is Princess Leia in the first Star Wars, right? Yes, you know, yes. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. This is our most desperate hour. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. So these holograms that we're talking about today are not that hologram. Um, to make a hologram like that, you would need these kind of prohibitively expensive lasers, and, and if you actually touched that hologram, it would burn human flesh. So they, that, that's not the type of hologram we're talking about. 
what they did with Tupac and pretty much all of the subsequent holograms, it's basically a 19th century magic trick. A guy named John Henry Pepper, who is a scientist, it's disputed whether he actually came up with this trick, but it's come to be known as Pepper's Ghost. And he basically figured out a way to set up kind of hidden mirrors and lights beneath a stage uh, during a theatrical production. And so there would be a live actor hidden under there, kind of like kind of like an orchestra pit, but hidden from the audience. And the mirror, the reflection of this person would show up on a piece of glass, a very thin piece of glass on the stage that would be angled so that the audience couldn't see the glass. So this kind of ghostly image would appear on the stage. And this was, you know, he debuted it at the Royal Polytechnic Institute in, in London in 1862. It was Christmas Eve, and they did a, a version of a, of a Charles Dickens story that it involved a ghost. It wasn't a Christmas carol, weirdly. but And so he did it initially as, as a sort of scientific lecture, but the crowd went nuts, and he decided, oh, huh, I might maybe I'll just take this on the road. And so he started using it, um, touring it, basically. And so these current this current wave of holograms, you know, they're no longer using glass and there's no longer a live person beneath the stage. But it's essentially the same thing that these CGI versions of deceased artists are being projected onto a kind of invisible scrim on the stage. And, and it looks three-dimensional to people in the audience. I was mm. fascinated with that part of the article, Mark, because uh, I had fallen down one of those rabbit holes once where I was researching Victorian theater and Pepper's <laughs> Ghost in particular. So this is really one of the cheesiest, lowest-tech, uh, old-fashioned uh, magician's tricks or theater tricks out there. And now we've got these companies that are investing some serious coin. And you have a pretty much great overview in the piece of everybody who's doing this and the different paths they're taking. Yeah, and it is, like you said, it is very funny. I mean, a few of these companies will say that they, you know, that it's proprietary information how they're doing this, but it's just this, Mm. you know, this old trick. And yeah, basically after the Tupac performance, there was a a little mini gold rush of of people trying to kind of uh, lock down rights to, to these artists' you know, images with the estates and a handful of companies popped up that the main two that are that are, you know, in business right now that that I focus on are called Base Hologram and Illusion, uh, E-Y-E, Illusion. Mm-hmm. And Base is the one that has done Roy Orbison. Pretty woman, won't you pardon me? Pretty woman, I couldn't help but see Pretty woman they did Maria Callas, the opera of Diva. And the big one that they're rolling out is going to be Whitney Houston, and that'll be the sort of, you know, big test case in a way to see if this can, this can really be a bigger thing than it is right now. Illusion has done more kind of niche artists who have very devoted cult followings. Frank Zappa. I might be moving to Montana soon Just to raise me up a crop of dental floss Ronnie James Dio. Between the velvet lies There's a truth that's hard to steal 
and they'll be doing uh, the pianist uh, Glenn Gould, I think, later this year. Oh, man. What a diverse, weird... You know, we were <laughs> remarking, uh, y- your piece opens uh, with the Dio, and we're just like, you know, really, of all the people you want to bring back from the dead, no disrespect to no. Ronnie James Dio, you know, Heaven and Hell, great album, okay? But it's like, really, they're bringing back Ronnie James Dio. Well, and in a weird and way, though, I went, to see it. <laughs> I went down a Dio rabbit hole <laughs> yeah. when I started working on this piece, and I found uh, there's on YouTube you can find all sorts of uh, clips from from his concerts in the the 70s and 80s in particular. And he did one tour with this giant animatronic dragon that breathes fire and he pulls out a sword and battles it. So in a weird way, you're like, okay, he would probably be into this. reason for Dio Illusion, the company that's that's doing the Dio tour, the founder is a guy named Jeff Pizzuti who, who made some money in tech and then saw the Tupac hologram and, and he told me, he thought, you know, I wonder if we could do this with a rock star. And he's just a Dio fanatic. Just mm-hmm. He told me he wore um, a Dio shirt in his seventh grade school picture and he's just yeah. always loved Dio. And I guess he approached um, his Dio's widow, Wendy, and she was, she was down. So it was a labor of love for him. Wow. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Your piece mentions that this is a lucrative business for for the few tours that have come out. The Roy Orbison tour you mentioned grossed 1.7 million over 16 shows. That's amazing. We here at Sound Opinions can't get over the cheesiness of this, and yet (laughs) there's clearly an audience out there primed to see this stuff. What is the draw? You went... You saw the Dio show, right? The Hologram show. I saw the Zappa show, actually. The Zappa show, okay. What... What was it about it that, how was the audience responding and what was your sense of what was happening up there on that stage with that hologram? Well, I have to say as a caveat, I love Zappa and I'm just not <laughs> a fan of his music. So I was not the ideal person to be to be sort of assessing whether the show works or not. But, but that said, you know, I went to see the opening night, which was at... Um, the Capitol Theater up in Westchester County, a beautiful old theater where, where the living Zappa actually played in the 70s. And, um, you know, seats about 1,800. It was basically sold out. And these are, you know, these are, Zappa has a pretty rabid fan base. And so oh, these yeah. were super fans who were there. And I have to say, yeah, they loved it. I mean, they, and it was for, you know, for this kind, I, I agree with what you guys are saying. It, it you know, there, there's definitely a creepy, aspect to this for sure and of also very kind of cheesy you know old-timey magic aspect to a lot of what you see but um with zap at least they very smartly deployed the hologram so they put together this really hot band of players who'd, who'd actually played with zappa mm. throughout his career and so the crowd was really into the these you know seeing these guys together again playing these these songs I His son Amit was part of it. Yeah, he was, um, you know, he was very involved in the, in the creative side of it. And he actually came on stage at the very end and kind of um, did a song. But um, so, yeah, they, they have, you know, all these guys who played with Zappa in the past. And then they use the hologram itself 
you know, judiciously. Somebody somebody there told me it's sort of like the shark in Jaws. You don't want it there all the time. You want it to mm. pop up yeah. <laughs> periodically <laughs> and, and get people amped up. And so it was, I would say, maybe 30% of the show, like suddenly Zappa would appear in the center and, you know, jam and, and talk to the audience a little bit. And it was, it was weird. But then he would disappear <laughs> and they would show like kind of trippy psychedelic graphics. And, and, and again, Zappa... In a, if you're going to do this, it's it's another, it's an artist who sort of makes sense because of the psychedelic nature of the music and the way you can sort of you know play around with with that imagery. I think you're filling in the blanks. It's always been my theory, Mark. Tell me if you agree with this. With uh, tribute bands, that uh, you know, people know they are seeing this incredible simulacrum. The visual element of the hologram it gives them one more thing to sort of live in their fantasy. It's like you know, fantasy sports or something. Yeah, I think you know we can all sit at home and listen to recordings of our favorite artists, the Beatles, Zappa, whoever whoever it is, but. There is there is something about going out to a theater or a club or an auditorium with a great sound system and, and the communal experience of hearing live music played really loud that way. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's why I think that's why people like tribute bands. That's why people, you know, what, one thing that came up over and over talking to, to these um, hologram companies are these like big jukebox musicals that have been popular for years and years. Yeah. Jersey Boys, there's the Cher show. I mean, you could go on and on, Mamma Mia. And, you know, they, they compare what some of these hologram tours might turn into to, to something like that. Like the Whitney show... You know, they've been pretty close-lipped about what exactly it will be, but they, you know, they, they were talking about, you know, thinking of it as sort of a tribute to Whitney Houston, you know, not like necessarily a concert that will fool you into thinking Whitney Houston has risen from the dead and is performing again. It's more of a celebration. One of the things I was fascinated about is if Dio was still alive, he'd have been 77. Now, nobody wants to go see... I mean, if he was still touring, you know, the faithful would be there. The faithful would be there no matter what shape Whitney Houston was in, right? But here is the ultimate way, perhaps, for pop music stars, uh, the vainest of any of our artists in pop culture, right, to preserve a, a forever young kind of illusion of them. Because it's like, it, you know, they, they didn't do the super young Dio. They knew that would be hard to buy, but they didn't do the old Dio either. You know, and and you make the point, according to the many interviews you've done, that uh, if a musician uh, goes through the hours of scanning and it's not an actor who's being scanned and then the, the digitally imposed uh, images of the star are put on this footage, right? If somebody, like, let's just say you're sick of touring, right? You go through 20 hours of scans and then you never have to go on the road again. And you say, make me uh, 25 years younger, please. Yeah. As you said that, I remember that way that I'd heard about this before the assignment, but post-Tupac, I did a George Clinton profile, probably, God, I want to say 2004. 14, something like that. And he just casually mentioned at one point that he and Sly Stone had both been scanned to be holograms. Yeah. And and it was one of those things, you know, I'm sure it's happened to you guys as well. You're, you're reporting a story about something else, but but a little detail just sticks out and you file that away for, you know, possible future sure. use. 
And so, yeah, I think you're. I think you're right. I'm sure lots more people are doing this. Lots more living people are doing this just to to have something in the bank. I mean, one of the estate planning. Yeah, exactly. One of the hologram reps, the one of the PR guys, told me that that's you know that's the pitch they make to these estates. Back in the day, if you're Warbison's family, you could periodically count on CD sales, things like that. After after the artist passes away, now with streaming, you know, um, you're getting getting pennies and so what's the solution you 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 put roy back on the road yeah well (laughs) the economics of music have always been that the vast majority of any star's income comes from live performance and now that continues even if you're dead (laughs) dead performance (laughs) it's better in a lot of ways they don't they don't have a bad night you know they don't all right mark we got to play this game you're a music fan we know greg and i've been fans of your work forever all right if you had one i think we each have to offer one greg if you had one (laughs) uh, ghost that could be brought back as a hologram who would it be God, the per- well, the person I thought of while I was at the Zappa show, my mind was kind of wandering because, as I said, I'm not a Zappa fan. And I was thinking, like, okay, this crowd is really into this. Who would who would I? Is yeah. there somebody that I would really love to see? And I thought maybe Bowie. This might sound sacrilegious, but mm. Bowie's one of those guys who I never saw. By the time I was, like, the right age to be, like, going to one of his shows, his records weren't that great anymore. And I kept thinking, oh, I'll, I'll go see him sometime. And then I just never saw him, and he passed away. And... He had so many different identities throughout his life. He he had this kind of alien mystique, yeah. of course. So there, there, there's a way which that you Bowie, could... which Bowie? That's the thing. Or do you want to see? You could have all of them. I think all Bowie's, right? Yeah, yeah, all Bowie. I want to see Sid Barrett. Mm. I think that'd be great. Right? I mean, I how many people that, yeah. saw the Pink well, Floyd could, with Sid Barrett? It would make sense. Barrett and Bowie would make sense because there was sort of a multimedia aspect about the way they would present their music on stage, right? I mean, yeah. uh, there was a lot of lights. And, and Barrett was hiding behind the, you know, uh, you yeah. know, the, 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 the oil lights anyway. Yeah. Prince, to me, is the first thing that popped into my head. Another artist who there was no two shows alike, and also probably enough great Prince associates, you know, musicians left that uh, they could put on a pretty great uh, show uh, around that. Um, Yeah, but see, I think the danger is you and I together have seen probably a hundred great Prince shows, right? You know, so you have that in your head. No. If it's somebody like Barrett or Bowie in an era you didn't see, like Ziggy Bowie, as opposed to I saw Bowie, you know, with Tin Machine and other things, right? You know, if if you didn't see it, the illusion's going to be No, as the words were coming out of my mouth, Jim, I realized there's no way I would go see that show. (laughs) No, no. I wouldn't go see any of these shows. Fascinating piece, though, Mark, and I think the upshot here, too, is that we are seeing generations of the road warriors, the people who have built the concert industry over the last 30, 40 years, pushing 60, pushing 70, pushing 80. And in another decade or so, a lot of these people either are going to be dead or not touring anymore. So what's left, right? That's kind of the the big question. Who's going to be 
bringing in that revenue for the music industry. So we are, here we have this hologram business. Is that, is that the cynical way to look at this long term? Well, I mean, that's what Peter Shapiro, who's a New York promoter, he also did the Grateful Dead Fare Thee Well shows. Right. Um, he's the owner of the Capitol Theater, where I saw that Zappa show. I spoke to him before the show, and he's, you know, he's in his for- late 40s probably, but he's a real classic rock guy. And he made that exact point, you know, all these guys, the Stones, Billy Joel, Elton John, you know, these these people who are just to- been to- who've been touring forever in 10 years, they probably won't be on the road. And... Um, you know, and you look at the, in 2019, 10 of the top 20 highest grossing North American artists, uh, as far as concert tours goes, were over 60. The top three were the Stones, Elton John, and Bob Seger. Uh, Seger surprised me, even though I'm from Detroit. I didn't realize mm-hmm. he still had that much of a following. So yeah, you know, this is a huge part of the the concert business right now. And I don't know that a hologram Bob Seger tour would do the numbers that, that <laughs> Live Seger would, but, you know, it, it would be something. We've been talking to Mark Benelli about his excellent piece in the New York Times magazine, Old Musicians Never Die, They Just Become Holograms. Thanks, Mark, for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. That wraps up our discussion, and now we want to hear from you. Would you go see a hologram tour, and if so, who would you want to see? Call 888-859-1800 and leave a message with your answer and why. Coming up next, we review a new album from a band that's very close to my heart, Wire. Greg will also take us on a trip to the desert island and play us a song he can't live without. What are you thinking of? Jim, I'm going to dig deep to a recent box set by an iconic artist to find a a beautiful track that has not surfaced until now. I'm going to hear what you got, because I thought I'd heard everything he'd given us. But that's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. He's Greg Cott. And that is Wire with a song called Cactus from the group's 17th album, Mind Hive. Amazing, Greg. 17 records since 1977 from these prolific English art punks. Uh, Consistently inventive from out of the gate. Pink Flag, 1977, Chairs Missing, uh, 78, and 154, 1980. Those first three albums, uh, no exaggeration to say, have influenced legions of bands since. Groups as diverse as Minor Threat and Guided by Voices, Helmet, and Lush, R.E.M. famously covered them, right? A group that has been very important and pretty consistent. We've had a lineup now since the early 2000s with Matthew Sims replacing lacing the original guitarist Bruce Gilbert, but otherwise still founding members Colin Newman, Robert Gray, and uh, Graham Lewis. What are they giving us 45-odd years into their careers? We're going to play a track from Mind Hive. We'll come back and we'll give our reviews. This is Be Like Them by Wire. It's nothing new. Hungry cats 
getting fatter, minds and thinner ideas. Nothing new about that. Too little of this. Not enough of that. Nothing new about that. Insomnia dogs me in this tired year. It's history. Rabbit dogs tearing skeletons into piles of bones. Nothing new about that. Too little of this. Not enough of that. That is Be Like Them from the new Wire album, Mind Hive. Hard to believe these guys have been around for over 40 years and yet still making vital music. I don't know if reinvent is quite the right word for them every time they make a record, but they certainly do not rest on their laurels. I'm thinking of a song like Unrepentant. Yes. That stoned feel in that song with the acoustic instruments. I'm going, I'm not sure I've ever heard a Wire song quite like this one. You know, kind of that moody, you know what it reminded me of? That Captain Beyond song, Sufficiently Breathless? Oh, that's interesting. Sitting on the doorstep watching as our people pass me by. You know, kind of a, like a, a weird psychedelic vibe in that There was song. a knock on the band in the 70s in the midst of the punk scene. Yeah. They were the Punk Floyd. Yeah. And it's a very Pink Floyd, like Adam Hart Mother sounding song it in is. some ways. It is. They, they, there's definitely those kind of influences there. You know, this album starts really dark with Be Like Them. I mean, uh, Robert Gray's drums are just terrifying oh, in that he's, song. He's so good. And then it ends in a really dark place. I mean, that song hung. I think the album whole builds to that sort of menacing atmospheric uh, vibe that they get in that song. Trust was lost. And the wheels had spun. And in between, there's kind of like these really melodic, even bouncy pop songs with yes. some really disturbing lyrics. What I like about Colin Newman and Graham Lewis as vocalists is that they're very dry. They're narrators. Mm-hmm. You know, if Samuel Beckett was a rock band, he'd be these guys. You know, it's that kind of, <laughs> the world is going to hell in a handbasket, yes. and I, I am just narrating yes. the collapse for you. And then there's a, a level of, you know, the subversiveness. Lewis on that song, Oklahoma, mm-hmm. where he was singing what I thought was, I admire your sexy curves. That's mm-hmm. what I thought he was singing. I go, ooh, is that a... John Mayer's song he's ripping off your Ed Sheeran song anything that obvious I admired I admired your sexy hearse hearse yeah I admired your sexy hearse 
And I'm going, whoa, that's a totally different spin. And what does what that I mean? About. Exactly. What does that, yeah. You know, Graham uh, writes the majority of the lyrics and Colin sings them. So there is always this distance. And Graham, as a poet, is very much a beat, mm-hmm. you know, obtuse and cut and paste and burrows, right? Yeah. But this, uh, you know, look. I, there's probably no critic, uh, I'm not boasting here, that is better equipped to comment on Wire. Mm-hmm. Since I toured with them, I have known Yeah, them. you know those guys a little bit. I have also, though, been super critical. Yeah. Don't ask me about Manscaped. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do ask me. I've yeah. told them to their face. What's different about this album? They have been uh, taking apart bits and pieces of the pure punk minimalist attack of Pink Flag, the expanding sound of Chairs Missing, and the full-on synth-pop mm. of 154 uh, for years now. Right. Uh, they have been exploring different odds and ends. And it's interesting to see that so many of the bands that they influence, they are now kind of nodding to. I'm thinking of the pure pop song Off the Beach, mm-hmm. which has the most Feelies-like yeah. chord progression mm-hmm. that I've heard since the Feelies' Good Earth. Yeah. Washed up the beach Have you ever been Swept up the beach the Feelies, a band that loved Wire, covered Outdoor Miner and Mannequin. So there's lots of that. Um, there is nothing new here, but there's nothing retread either. No. You know, if you, this was the first Wire album you ever heard, you know, I think you'd be really impressed and yeah. excited about Imagine this. Imagine if this was a new band. A new band. Right you know, we'd be going like, on. wow, this is great. But the other yeah. thing is that as Oblique, as Graham's lyrics always are, it is really striking to me that this is an album about a dark time, not only in America, Oklahoma is about mm-hmm. that. I think it's using Oklahoma uh, like you would Kansas as yeah. an example of middle America. But uh, be like them. It seems to me that that there is this populist movement of right-leaning people who have hate in their hearts that mm-hmm. is global. You know, right. It's happening in Italy. It's happening with Brexit in the UK. It's happening in America. And this is him commenting on that. And we hear that throughout the album, but never in a way that right. this is not going to feel old mm-hmm. in, in 10 years or 10 minutes or ever. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. As often as possible here on Sound Opinions, one of us takes a trip to the desert island and plays you a song we cannot live without. Greg, it is your turn. I'm eager to hear what you got. Uh, thank you, Jim. I, You know, Prince may have died in 2016, but uh, 2019 was a great year for Prince music. Um, you know, and that may sound like, what are, we, what are you talking about? There is so much great stuff coming out of the vaults for Prince, uh, starting with that 2018 album, Piano and a Microphone, essentially a solo mini concert in his living room followed by Originals, which came out last summer, those 15 demos, 14 Mm. previously unreleased that became hits for other artists like the Bangles or Sinead O'Connor. And now we have this 1999 box set, which you go, okay, 1999, iconic album, sold 4 million copies, first top 10 single with Little Red Corvette, and that iconic title track, which was a hit four different times over three decades. (laughs) You go, what don't we know about 1999? I I was skeptical. And here we go. We have a a box set, which includes basically two albums worth of unreleased material, and those Mm. albums are great. 
and I'm, I'm of a mind of people like Neil Young, you know, guys who would make records and then not, not put them out. Prince was in that same category. So prolific, he didn't know what to do with all of his music. I'm telling you, the 35 tracks that were shelved during the recording sessions and never released before, it's amazing. I mean, most mm. artists would have been thrilled to have a catalog with those 35 tracks only in it. I want to focus on one of those tracks. It's called Can't Stop This Feeling I Got, which later surfaced on Rainbow Bridge, the later record that he put out in 1990, the soundtrack. The demo version is has got this jittery new wave feel. It's kind of almost Devo-esque. And you can hear some of the influence of his pal Des Dickerson at the time, who was really into that kind of music. They would sort of develop these things in sound checks and recording sessions. This was recorded solo by Prince. When you're listening to this track, recognize that Prince is playing the drums, the bass, the keys, the guitar, and layering all the vocals on it. <laughs> it's one guy in his Chanhassen home studio, this is pre-Paisley Park era, building this, this you know, incredibly, to me, catchy and energetic new wave-ish type track that to me still sounds terrific. This is from Prince's 1999 box set, the demo for Can't Stop This Feeling I Got on Sound Opinions. A, uh, a digging deep, Greg Cott, for the Prince demo for Can't Stop This Feeling I Got, your Desert Island jukebox pick for the week. What do we have on the show next week? Well, Jim, that was sort of a buried treasure, and next week we got a boatload of them. We're going to dig deep for uh, more under-the-radar music that we think you need to hear. Excellent. For more sound opinions, listen to our podcast wherever you find such things. The show is produced by Brendan Banizak, Alex Claiborne, Iona Contreras, and Andrew Gill. Sylvia's mother says Sylvia's busy, too busy to come to the phone. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Corey Zimmerman, Atlanta, Georgia. Your show on King Crimson was absolutely 
amazing. I've been a fan of theirs for 50 years and was hoping that one day you would give them um, your treatment. And I wanted to really hear what you all would have to say. And I must say your um, research and depth of knowledge about them is pretty extraordinary. And like you said in your uh, preface to all of this, the real the real devoted fans might nick you on a couple of little things, which is probably true. But on the overall, though, it's a absolutely incredible show, and it was very enriching, and I loved listening to it. And I hope other people will hear it again, and then they will hopefully find a whole new generation of audience. Have a great day. The yellow jester does not play, but gently pulls the strings. Smiles as the puppets dance in the court of the crimson. Hi, my name is Frank, and I'm calling from Trenton, New Jersey. I was one of those geeky kids at 16 years old buying the King Crimson, Court of Crimson King album and just devouring it, loving the second phase as I turned towards metal. I am unashamed say that I am a King Crimson freak. Thank you so much for the episode. Thanks, Jim and Greg. Take care. My name is Thayer Mann in Atlanta, Georgia. I never make comments on radio programs because generally the music under discussion is of no interest of mine. But my favorite album of all time is tied between Pink Floyd's Omagama and King Crimson's In the Court of Crimson King. I have not resolved this tie in 50 years. But my favorite song of all time is Epitaph by King Crimson. which I never played until 25 years after owning the album. Because when I first heard it at 17, I didn't like it. It's my, still my favorite song of all time. Anyway, I'm ramble on, but it's good to hear this program, and I thought I would give my opinion. Long live King Crimson. Hi, my name is Anna uh, Underwood, and I'm calling from Canvas, Washington. And I really enjoyed the segment today on Tupac and uh, Biggie Smalls and I'm calling in to share a little bit about what they meant to me in my life. See, I was probably middle school, high school in the mid-90s. I came from a small town, Camas, Washington, and in our community, there were a lot of people that um, kind of went the way of Nirvana, skateboarding, and a little bit of white supremacy, and that just didn't add up for me. And my life was a little bit tough. So the words that Tupac would share, they really resonated with me. I kind of had some struggles with how to appreciate his music, and I was a you know a white girl in a homogenous town, small town, small minded, and even liking Tupac and uh, Biggie was uh, controversial for us. 
Um, I had a small group, a dance crew, some people we hung out with, and anybody that was from the uh, the black community, the brown community, those people were the people that I enjoyed spending time with. The, the kinship that the music that those men brought into our lives felt real and honest. The grungy lifestyle, it just wasn't who we were. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.